How's it going? Good. How are you? <laughs> I am doing well. Can you tell me your job title and in seven words, your job function? Seven words. Okay, that's going to be challenging. Um, <laughs> my job title is Director of Individual Giving, and I raise money for a nonprofit. That's six words, but that's I hope six, that six works. Nonprofit is hyphenated. I was counting. No, that does work. Um, and it didn't seem that challenging from your execution. So um, congratulations in believing on yourself. Thank now, in as many words as you want, can you talk about sort of what that means? Like, what's individual giving? Sure. So, in my role, I connect with individual donors, typically folks with high net worth, uh, sort of whether it's family wealth or, or personal wealth. Um, I meet with them and connect their philanthropic priorities with the organization that I work for. And oftentimes that means soliciting them for gifts um, to our organization that will support different programs that we offer. Uh, so it's a lot of making sure that I'm advising people on how to think intentionally about their philanthropic support. Interesting. What do you mean by high net worth? Like, what's the qualifier? That's a good question. I don't know that we have a, a qualifier. Oftentimes these individuals sort of reveal themselves. Um, so for example, you know, they might make a $5,000 gift and we say to ourselves, wow, great. They made a $5,000 gift. Perhaps there's more philanthropic capacity there. So let's connect with them. Let's meet with them. Let's see if there's more ability for them to give to our organization. Um, in other cases, we sort of look up people based upon different um, sort of criteria. So, for example, if they have a certain title at a certain organization, we can presume that their income um, is at a certain level and perhaps uh, they might be a good fit for uh, a board member position or um, perhaps they just want to be a donor and, and, and give up their support to us. And so there might be some markers, but typically it's more inbound where people give to us and that initiates some type of conversation with them. Gotcha. But not everybody who gives, do you have a conversation? No, no. Unfortunately, that's not the case at the moment. Um, I think some organizations do a really great job at that. You know, whether you get $5 or whether you get $50,000, It'll warrant a conversation. I think for most nonprofits, they, including ours, we sort of really try to focus on the folks who um, give higher dollar amounts because we really want to financially sustain ourselves. And part of that is, you know, asking for more uh, if there is more to be had. Gotcha. So then is it, so how much time do you spend looking at or connecting more deeply with the people who have already given versus finding new people to give? Mm -hmm. um, a lot of my time is spent engaging with the people who have already given. Um, typically, these folks, we know that they have inclination. So I'm going to backtrack a little bit and then sort of move forward. 
there are two things that every fundraiser is looking for, including myself. We're looking for inclination and we're looking for capacity. So capacity is just, you know, whether they have the money, but inclination is do they have uh, the genuine interest in the mission that we um, are sharing and many of the people who give to us on their own volition, we know that they have the inclination. And so we don't need to sort of uh, do too much digging there or convince them that our mission is worthy of their philanthropic support. Mm. So when you have the conversation is like, Oh, can you give again? Or is it like <laughs> targeted to us? Like, how do you, how do you approach them? So they gave the first time. And then what is your follow-up, especially to ask for more money? <laughs> that can be odd. Yeah, yeah. Uh, a mentor of mine sort of likens it to dating. And I think I think that metaphor, or is that an, an analogy? That metaphor, sure, we'll go with metaphor, um, rings true for fundraising because it is kind of like dating. You're figuring each other out. You're trying to understand what, like, the goal of the relationship might be and the time to come. So it, it can be a long-term process. So um, one of the initial conversations is just really to understand why they gave. So I might meet with them and I might thank them for their support and say, thank you so much for your gift. We're really grateful that you chose us as a priority. I'm curious to hear more about why you chose our organization. And that usually will sort of spiral into your really understanding what they care about, what types of missions um, are sort of front of mind for them. And oftentimes there's some sort of personal connection to the mission. So, for example, you know, um, some donors might have had, and my organization, we, we work in college access and success. Some donors might have had a really challenging college admission process with their own kids. And so they understand that, you know, for lower income students and, and BIPOC students, that there are overwhelmingly even more challenges because the college admission process has been set up against them. And so they're really invested in that mission, having gone through it themselves with their own students. Um, so oftentimes there's that personal connection that just makes it so much easier to have the conversation about why they give and why they might potentially give more. So from when you have that initial conversation or that outreach, when would you ask them to give again? Different people have different philosophies around this. Um, I've heard best practice is like nine touches before you ask again, uh, or somewhere between, you know, five and nine touches. So a touch could be anything from an email with an impact report or another meeting, or you send them a small token of appreciation and gratitude. But there are typically, you know, five to nine touches that happen between the first ask and the second ask. Um, my my personal philosophy is that I ask when I think the person is ready to give more. And usually there are indicators that um, they're ready to make that second contribution or a third contribution or whatever it is, whatever the number is. And so, you know, in, in, in my experience, I've heard people say or ask rather, you know, what are some things that you're working on now? You know, what's the next big project that you'd like to see come into fruition you know, where are there students that are currently not being served where you can make an impact? 
And when, when people are starting to ask those questions, that to me is like a flag that they're ready to engage more. They're ready to give more because they're asking about the, the work that we want to do and the work that we can do with additional money. And so that for me is usually the, the key phrases and questions that I listen in for. Wow. Has fundraising been harder in COVID? Because I imagine that, or I mean, I don't imagine it, right? But there's so many reports and there's so many, there's, there's so many reports about joblessness and sort of income insecurity. So, yeah. That's a good question. I think when, in March of 2020, when things really started to close down in the United States, at least, I think fundraisers, including myself across the board, were a little bit more apprehensive about asking because we were mindful that people were losing jobs, people were sick, people were dying, and people were just feeling, um, you know, so many different feelings about what was happening in the world at that time. I certainly took a pause from fundraising. Because not only was there the pandemic, you know, in, in March of 2020, there was also a lot of conversation around racial justice that became more explicit in the news. And so there was a lot that gave me pause at that time. Um, and, you know, I should also provide context that in March of 2020, I was working for a university where I felt like I didn't need to fundraise as hard. Um Fast forward, you know, January 2021, I'm working at a new organization that is focused on helping low-income students uh, and students from underserved communities and, and underrepresented backgrounds pursue post-secondary education. That mission is a little bit more, to me, um, it feels a little bit more urgent than raising money for a graduate school where, you know, we, we had fellowships and research and things to fund, but that urgency, I didn't feel it in that space where I do feel it now at my current organization. Um, so your question was about, is fundraising harder? Um, or how has it how changed? Has it changed? Yeah, I think people are starting to really by people, I mean donors are really starting to be intentional about their giving in ways that they hadn't before. A lot of people are giving local, so, you know, their local food shelter or, or um, uh, not food shelter, food pantry or, or local shelter. Um, but the interesting thing is like, yes, there is joblessness. Yes, um, a lot of people are hurting right now economically. But a lot of people are actually doing quite well. And I think that's a part of the, the story that we don't hear as often. Well, maybe some people do, but, you know, folks who have been sitting on stocks, folks who have um, invested in certain assets, like they're doing well at this moment. Um, and so, yes, there is philanthropic capacity still, although it doesn't look the same all across the board for high net worth individuals, it looks actually a lot better um, than previously. Well, that's interesting. That's actually an interesting point too, because I also read this thing that was like, some people have made like, I think Jeff Bezos made a trillion dollars 
Yeah, English. something like that. Yeah. Like, been, or at least, like, there's a few people who made billions of dollars. Like, an individual made a billion dollars in the past year. Um, and so it, it's the way the money moves is very interesting to me. It was a rapper that was like, oh, I made so much money in this pandemic. Like, <laughs> it should go on forever. I think it was like Money Bag Yo or something. And it's like, maybe you should tap him. I don't know. <laughs> so do you, I'm curious, do you find that um, you, the people that you're in touch with about giving, like, what's the correlation between race and money that you, if you find one funny? <laughs> Yeah, this is, this is purely anecdotal. There's okay. a ton of data out there about it. But from my vantage point, there is such a strong correlation. Um, most of the donors that give, you know, five-figure plus gifts, um, you know, they tend to be older. They tend to be white. They tend to have worked in finance or some sort of adjacent industry where the income and compensation is high, uh, where they get bonuses that are pretty substantive. Um, I have not encountered many donors of color in my experience, um, which is really unfortunate. I think the philanthropic space has a lot of room for donors of color to show up. Uh, and it's not that they don't want to show up, it's that they're overshadowed by higher net worth white people who get a lot of the credit and visibility for their philanthropy. Um, you know, when we, when we, when I sort of think about the most philanthropic community, it's actually the black community, the communities that are going to their church and giving their tithe every week. That's philanthropy, but we don't count it as such. And so therefore it is not visible in the same way that you know, Michael Bloomberg is visible when he gives $150 million to Harvard for their, you know, mayor program, helping train, you know, mayors to do better jobs. So um, there, yes, there's a correlation between philanthropy. White philanthropists are certainly more visible. Um, and I think give at higher levels uh, most of the time. But, you know, people of color give. They just give differently. Sure. And it, I think it's interesting, right, particularly because you work at a college act, a foreign college access program, that potential disparity between, um, particularly if it's, if, you know, you said it's for like underrepresented <laughs> groups. And so it's interesting. It's interesting the flow of resource, mm-hmm. to me at least. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's, there's a lot to reflect on there, especially when I go back to my own personal experience. You know, I went to independent school for high school, predominantly white institution for college, for undergrad. And at both of those institutions, I was funded by scholarships that were provided by white donors. And it felt like a very awkward experience. I very distinctly remember having to write, um, handwritten thank you notes um to like the people who funded my scholarship and that that sort of power dynamic just felt awkward um i understood the purpose and intent behind it but i think the impact is like you know you need to be grateful to these rich white people for giving you opportunities and it's like well you know 
if slavery didn't happen, maybe I would not have had to <laughs> ask them for this money. If, you know, white people hadn't enslaved black folks for so many years, like we wouldn't be in this really awkward situation. Um, but yeah, I, I, I hear not that. Not a really I, awkward situation. <laughs> it's, it's, yeah, awkward is not the right adjective here. But I actually um, love it. I love that. Yeah. But it's, uh, one of the things that, I'm excited to do with my organization is tap into the black philanthropic community and the philanthropic community of, of color in general. Um, because I think for students to see themselves reflected in the donors who support them and see that the folks investing in their success look exactly like them. I think that that is a really powerful thing to to see and to experience for students. Um, and I would have liked that for myself as well. So, yeah, that's one thing that's sort of priority for me as I adjust to this new role. Yeah, I can imagine that. Like, as you're writing the letter, like, if the name is similar to yours, or like, or like they too went through a college access program and came out of the other side in a way that they're now able to help with the funding of the program. That does seem really powerful, actually. Um, and we did not go to the same college, but I've heard that from people who went to my college. So I don't think that y- your institution was and <laughs> was isolated in that activity. Yeah, <laughs> definitely not. So tell me, what does your day look like? So particularly like with emphasis on the work day, how, how are you spending your time? What are the things that you need to do? It differs by the day. Um, there are some days where I'm in the midst of spreadsheets, um, filtering through, you know, name after name after name, trying to see who are the donors that I should be reaching out to. So most recently, you know, I, I pulled a list of donors who gave over 10,000, you know, during the last five to seven years. And I was just looking through their, the names and their information to see, you know, who is a subset um, of that group that I can reach out to for a meeting. So sometimes that's how I spend my days. Uh, other days, I'm prepping materials for meetings. So in advance of a conversation with a donor, maybe I need to look up certain um, impact data from the program so that I can present it to them in a meaningful way. Um, sometimes I'm putting together pitch decks for donors, especially if it's, you know, a conversation that is further along, and I really want to ask them for a large um, dollar amount of support. Um, other design thinking through strategy on how we can acquire new donors. Um, so, you know, maybe there are companies that we should be collaborating with to acquire new donors or giving circles that we should be collaborating with to find new donors. So sometimes I'm sort of piecemealing strategy to figure out who do I need to connect with at that organization to find the right people to get to the right people. Um, so it really depends, you know, no, Every day is different, um, which is which you know is why this job is so exciting because I think it's so multifaceted and my organization is super small. It's only four of us on the fundraising team, so it's very entrepreneurial. 
Um, and you sort of do a little bit of everything depending on what the needs are. Interesting. So how many meetings do you actually end up having in a given time period? Like in a week, how many are these donor meetings are you doing? Um, it depends. Um, so when I, when I worked at a university, we had 120 meetings per year, um, which is, you know, not, not that many when you divide it by 12 months, but, um, you know, between preparing for meetings and then follow up after meetings, the time can add up. Uh, but at my current role, I'm new. Uh, so people are a little bit more eager to meet me because they want to get to know the new guy. And I sort of position myself as, I'm new. I want to learn about your experience as a donor. Can you spend 20 minutes with me? And so people jump at that because they want to share their story and share about their relationship with the organization. So I've had, you know, between two and three meetings per week-ish. Um, but over time, you know, as people see my face more often, they're less excited to, to have a conversation with me because they know why I'm trying to meet with them. Um, so, yeah. We'll, we'll see what that number looks like in the future. Interesting. So the novelty wears off and they're like, oh my God. Yeah. Until, <laughs> until you bring out the next shiny thing, like, you know, we have a strategic plan coming out. So that'll be like the next big intro conversation. Um, or when, you know, a new video comes out, that's another sort of entry point to a conversation. Um, but yes, the novelty of me being new will wear off very soon. So how is, so sort of making a certain amount of meetings sounds like that might be one barometer of success. What other barometers of success exist in your role? Like how, like when they're saying, oh, you're doing a good job, what is it that Mm -hmm. is actually happening? Yeah, for, I'll talk a little bit about my previous role because it was a bit more clear. Um, so, uh, at a university, we look at number of meetings, number of cash that comes in, number of solicitations. So like how much money did you ask for? Um, and from whom, how many different people and how many of those solicitations actually close? So after you made the ask, did it actually come in? Did it not come in? Um, they look at sort of how many meetings at different levels you've had. So like how many of your meetings were qualified meetings where you're just meeting the donor for the first time? How many of your meetings were solicitations where you were making an ask? How many of your meetings were cultivation meetings where you were just building the relationship, et cetera, et cetera. Um, I think those were the major KPIs. Um, but in my current role, it's a little different because I'm the only individual giving person in the organization. Um, so I'm sort of crafting my own metrics um, right now. Uh, but I'll probably repurpose a lot of the ones from my previous role and add a few more based upon the level of strategy work that I'm doing. Interesting. But you said there's four people on the team. Yeah, so we have um, a national director of development. She is primarily responsible for, like, you know, managing the team, making sure that the workflows are moving forward. 
We have an operations person who helps with our CRM and other sort of uh, operational tasks that keep us organized. Um, we have a person who does grants and communications and, uh, you know, he runs our social media and writes a lot of the grants for the foundations. Uh, and then me, I do individual giving specifically. So I'm the sort of frontline gift officer who works directly with donors. Right. So you're talking to people, whereas at least the grant person is like talking to organizations. Exactly. So it's more institutional giving that he focuses on. So now as you, so what, how have you been able to define success for yourself? If you're like, oh, I'm lit. <laughs> In this role, <laughs> I'm killing it. Like, what is it? Like, what are your own barometers? You even mentioned you're developing some stuff. So. Yeah. So one of the one of the things that I'm looking at is like creating an engagement score for donors. Um, so you know, how many touch points have I had with donors? Um, what are the um, you know, events that they've attended, uh, how have they responded to different communications that have gone out. Um, so I'm looking at all those pieces to build an engagement score. And one of the metrics that I will be measuring for myself is, you know, the, the difference in pre-meeting engagement score to post-meeting engagement score or post-relationship engagement score. Um, to see how I sort of move people in their relationship with the organization. Um, I'm looking at, I, I work with more board members now, so I'm looking a lot at how I support them in their fundraising efforts. So all of our board members have a give get and um, supporting them in soliciting their colleagues and their friends and their peers um, so, you know, if board member A doesn't reach their goal, that's something that I think reflects on the work that I put in to help and support them in soliciting their, their network. Um, what else? I think ultimately, like, the main metric that I'm interested in is how much of the organization is institutionally driven or supported versus uh, individually supported. So right now, you know, I think over 60% of our budget or our revenue is through grants, which is fine, but it's also not sustainable. Um, so I'd like to move that needle so that individual giving actually takes up more of the pie when it comes to our revenue generation. Um, so that's one of the goals that I have for myself in sort of year two, but it's definitely front of mind for me now. That was a very long answer, but no, I think helpful. that makes a lot of sense too. And so, when you say that the each board member has a give get, that mm -hmm. means that if you're on the board of at least the nonprofit you work for, you have a minimum amount of money you should be donating to the organization. That you should be giving, or through your network bringing in so let's say we have a give get of you know 50k maybe you give 10k are you going to get the 40k for your friends and family perhaps there are other donors that might be able to contribute 25k and they can solicit the balance from other folks um 
So that's what a give get is. Gotcha. And you mentioned sort of the unsustainability of being grant dominant in revenue. Mm-hmm. But I would have actually thought the opposite. I was like, I would, I, in my mind, I think that focusing on an individual that has like whims and issues <laughs> can be a bit more, um, unstable. But, it sounds like that's not the case. Yeah, it. I'd say for most organizations, that isn't the case. Um, so with grants, you know, they might secure funding for a year, two years, maybe three years. But after that, you either have to renew or you have to find that money elsewhere. Mm. Um, so, you know, and, and I think for foundations they like to fund the next big thing. So they have these like, you know, five-year windows that they agree to fund you or 10-year window. And then they say, go find money elsewhere, come back after a few years. But like, we want to see what else is out there because we can't just support you. There are other people that need our support. Um, so for individuals though, you know, once they feel connected to the mission, retention is actually a lot easier and more sustainable than from an institutional perspective because um, once people are bought into the mission they want to see you grow they want to see you develop over time um, but that's yeah I, I think generally speaking people might agree with me there might be some exceptions uh, but yeah that's what I'd say well, I mean, I'm also not in industry, right? So my opinion is like <laughs> unsubstan- is not as substantiated as yours. So I'll trust the professional. <laughs> yeah, I mean, the um, other piece of it is that, like, with individuals, it's 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 a bit easier to guide their experience because they are ultimately the one making the decision about their philanthropy. Um, so, like, you know, regardless of the external finances of, of their um, family or, or their personal finances, they're making that decision. For institutions, it depends like who the stakeholders are at that organization. So, you know, you get a new CEO, you get a new whatever, and they're like, oh, we don't really care about that org. Take them off the docket. You're done. Um, so there are too many decision makers on the institutional front, whereas like the individual side you can build a relationship that feels more uh, sustainable. Interesting. Wow. All right. <laughs> How did you get into this work? I I very much fell into it. I don't think that anyone really chooses to be a fundraiser, although I've met some people who are career-long or life-long fundraisers, and those people are interesting to me. But I fell into it. I was um, working for a high school program at the time, um, and the program was going to spin out of the university where I was working at. It was a high school program placed at a university. program was going to spin out of the university, become a startup. And I was not about that startup life at the time. I needed things like health insurance. And so I said, rather than start uh, a startup with the founder, I'll stay at the university and find a new position. And 
Um, what was your first position? My first position with the high school program or with mm-hmm. fundraising? No, with the high school program. So you said you worked, you continued to work for the institution, but in a different role. But well, what was your first? Yeah, role? yeah, I was a program coordinator for the for the high school program. Gotcha. And then when the program left the university, I, I was like unemployed for a month, literally looking for whatever job I could find. So I was looking at admissions jobs because I worked in admissions prior. I was looking at program director job. I was literally looking at anything that would give me an interview. Um, a month later, I heard about an opening at uh, MIT and, you know, the people there know me well. And someone said, Hey, Marvin, you should check this out. It's an opening. They're looking to hire quickly. Go for it. I applied, um, and got the job pretty quickly afterwards. Um, in part because having having institutional knowledge helps you fundraise a lot better. So having worked at MIT as an employee and worked on different MIT programs, I can quote unquote sell the university a little bit better to donors because I have that intimate experience with the organization. Um, so I kind of landed there. But that being said, there was a little bit of intention because my goal, um, in life, I'll say, was to be a head of school back in the day. And most heads of schools need to know how to fundraise. And so I said to myself, there's no better place for me to learn how to fundraise than at the institution where I currently work, where I'll get a lot of professional development, where I can sort of build the foundation that I need to eventually go back and work with high school students at a high school or or some other nonprofit. But you stayed. So is that still your thing? (laughs) Yeah, I think once you, once I started working in fundraising, a lot of my life goals changed. Um, I realized that I'm really good at fundraising, that I enjoy a lot of it. Um, And so I stayed for three and a half years, um, you know, progressively working with more donors who had more capacity, who were giving higher dollar amounts. And um, at that point, I felt like I learned everything that I needed to learn at MIT, which is part of the reason why I transitioned to this new role. Gotcha. Do you, because in my mind now, I'm thinking about it like sales, (laughs) but like in reverse. So like, instead of you, no, actually sales, right? Because if you work for sales in an organization, you're looking to get money. <laughs> like you're <laughs> looking for customers to give you money. Um, so that way your institution can do something with it. So like, but also in sales, some people get paid on like contingency. Does it work <laughs> the same in fundraising? Like commission? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, it, it, it can feel salesy, especially depending on the organization you work for. I am a mission-driven fundraiser, so it doesn't feel salesy to me. <laughs> For me, like I, I view myself as a philanthropic advisor. Like I'm advising donors on how to leverage their discretionary funds to make an impact on the world, a positive impact on the world. Um, there, there is nothing rational about giving away your money to other people who. You know, there's nothing rational, like nothing 
although some people might say like it's human nature, but philanthropy is not like not really human nature. It's not rational. So I see myself as an advisor who's creating that intention behind people's giving. Um, I forget what your question was. How do you get paid? Like, <laughs> oh, how do I get paid? <laughs> so you get paid um, depending on sort of what level you work at. So um, at universities and some other organizations, there's like annual fund, which is, I don't want to say the lowest tier, but it's smaller dollar amounts. And so typically those are lower paid opportunities. Then there's leadership gifts or major gifts, depending on how it's branded at the organization. Um, that's when you're bringing in more money for the organization. And typically those jobs pay a little bit better, obviously. Um, and then at the sort of top of the pyramid, there are um, principal gifts, uh, plan gifts, transformational gifts. And those are like, you know, you're bringing multi-million, billion dollars. And those are the highest paid um, fundraisers. Um, so, you know, it's not really commission because you're not getting paid per sale. But there's a bit of that sort of leveling up depending on how much revenue you bring in. Interesting. And so it's like you have to... So is it like to get a promotion, you have to exceed the expectations? So if you start an annual fund and they expect you to bring back like $10,000 from your intervention, and is that even a reasonable number or is it like you're supposed to bring in way more? It depends on, it depends on the fundraising shop. I think, you know, working at MIT, it's a multi-billion dollar organization the organization I work for now, you know, our budget is less than four million, so it's very, very different. Um, but uh, yeah, I guess most promotions are through exceeding your fundraising goal um, and having demonstrated like really strong relationship management skills. To be quite honest, like promotions in the fundraising world are relatively. There isn't, there hasn't, in my experience, been best practice across industry. Every organization does it differently. Sometimes it's based upon your relationship with your manager or the CEO. Um, like, you know, I've seen some fundraisers who are not very good at their jobs, but they are major gift officers and making bank. Do, you know, I don't understand how that works out, but it happens. And the other piece of it is, you know, so much of fundraising is luck. You happen to get the right portfolio um, at the right time. And, you know, your portfolio performs really well because it was handed to you as a really warm uh, portfolio. Uh, in my experience, you know, I had a really warm portfolio when I covered the New England. And then when I started working with donors in the Midwest, that was like cold calling. And it wasn't a warm portfolio, so I struggled in the Midwest, whereas I thrived really well in New England. So, you know, there's no best practice for promotion, unfortunately. I think a lot of people get elevated um, by chance, not because of purpose. Um, and that's unfortunately very pervasive in the industry. But that's just my hot take on that. <laughs> Interesting. <laughs> and I like how I do, I don't know if it was intentional, but you juxtapose like very warm versus cold calling. Or maybe that's like an industry, that's like industry lingo. 
anyway. Like those juxtapos- those juxtapositions are built in. Mm-hmm. And so very more means like it works. Like it's like it's it's active. Very yeah, very warm means that they they feel connected to the organization. They've had a few meetings probably. Um you know, they they know the purpose of your job. Um you know, they they feel familiar to you. Mm. Um I've worked with other people who like you know, they accept the meeting and then I meet them and they're like, So what's what's your job? What do you do? And you have to start them from the very beginning and sort of tell them about your work, tell them the purpose of the conversation and sort of work them up. Um, and there are other people who have, who have had really negative experiences. They've met with a, a fundraiser who didn't follow through, didn't follow up or who was just really mean to them or, or whatever it is. And they have negative experiences that makes them cold. And so when you meet with them for their first time, they're just trying to establish, well, you as a fundraiser, you're just trying to establish basic trust. Uh, and so they're, they're a bit colder of a lead. Wow. And if you started, if you fell into it, what do you feel like got you the job? Like, what are the skills that you needed that, yeah, what, like, what, like, what did you have? that you think made them feel comfortable to be like, oh, he has no, like, direct experience in this line of work, but we're going to hire him anyway. (laughs) I think a lot of it was, having worked at MIT, I knew MIT really well. And I knew the Sloan School, because I was raising money for the business school in particular. I knew the business school well. I knew the faculty. I knew the research. I knew the different types of programs. I knew the students. I could talk about MIT well. Training someone to talk about your organization is really costly and, and time consuming, but coming in with that knowledge, I was already sort of, you know, a, a ahead of other new fundraisers that they might have brought in. Um, I think another piece is, uh, I worked in fundraising before, but in a different capacity. So when I attended Colgate, I was interning at the special events office, which is part of the fundraising department. And so I was already familiar with the industry, although sort of peripherally knowledgeable of fundraising specifically, but I knew that they existed. Um, but my exposure to fundraising was more about events. So like massive events and galas and things like that. Um, but I had, I had sufficient relevant experience. Um, and the third piece I'd say is, um, I, I, I wouldn't consider myself like an extrovert, but when it comes to relationship building, I felt like I could demonstrate that really well. Um, I, I, I think of myself as a person who asks good questions and thoughtful questions. Um, sorry about that. Dog in the background. Um, I feel like I'm a very kind person or I show up as kind in most conversations. So they felt confident that I can bring that like, you know, human side of the work to the table. Uh, I don't know. Am I a good person to talk to? (laughs) But how 
how can somebody one I thought that was a baby at first. I was like, when did you get a baby? Like <laughs> No babies here. I did not I thought the barking when you like, Oh, that's a dog and I was like, Oh, I thought that was dead a baby. Like when did he bring a baby in? Anyway, I was like but how do how do you how is that measured in an interview to be like, Oh, this person is a relationship builder? Mm-hmm. I don't know that those are things that are measurable in an interview. Um, they're, they're human skills, uh, that aren't quantifiable in the same type of way. Um, I don't, I don't know. I don't have an answer, a good answer to your question. I think there are certain competencies that they're looking for, you know, ability to, um, sort of keep a conversation going and, and, um, you know, create connections during conversations, ability to, you know, ask thoughtful questions and engage in back and forth. Um, but yeah, I don't have a good answer to your question. <laughs> Sorry to disappoint you. <laughs> no, I think that's fine. The part, the pieces that you did share, uh, I appreciate it. Um, because I think if that's like a major part of the role, like how are people, like where are people looking for that evidence to define competency? And so if you're in the role and you're like, oh, I don't really know, like, then it may not be as straightforward as some people may anticipate it to be. Yeah, I think when it comes to, um, when it comes to fundraising, we're not as advanced in our hiring practices as other industries. So it's very much an art and it's not a science at all. Mm, interesting. What are some of the things you had to then learn? Like what are the sort of then as coming in cold to keep the analogy, like what, what were the things that you had to learn quickly that were probably more novel to you? Yeah. Um, I did a program called Plus Delta that I think equipped me with all the tools that I needed to get started in the industry. So um, in these monthly meetings that I had with Plus Delta, we would talk about the different stages of the donor engagement process. So when I'm qualifying donors, for example, they taught us how to sort of tune in to certain comments that donors would make that might clue us into their capacity. So, for example, if a donor in a conversation says, you know, recently my family foundation made a contribution to, you know, the Museum of Science. In normal conversation, like, I would not have paid attention to that. But at Plus Delta, they trained us to look for those clues to make sure that we can pick up on them and, and take them further. So, you know, if someone mentions a family foundation, I might say, Tell me more about your family foundation. How many family members are involved? Again, like normal Marvin pre-fundraising experience would have never thought to ask those questions. But after Plus Delta, I felt like I was more equipped to understand how donors think, how they process, um, what types of capacity indicators are out there, um, how experienced of a donor they are. You know, there are some donors who are very in tune with the industry they they know all the terminology they know how to give money to different things they plan out their philanthropy every year 
there are other donors who are newer to being a donor and you're taking them on this journey for the first time. And so Plus Delta really taught me how to adapt to those different scenarios, no matter where a donor is. Um, but I think more importantly, like the program really helps me practice negotiation because at the end of the day, fundraising is a lot of just negotiating. Uh, especially when you get to the point in your relationship where you're asking, it's a matter of like, I know you have money. You know, I know that you have money. Now we just need to figure out how much and when and for what specifically. And so I feel like it armed plus Delta armed me with the language to be more thoughtful in negotiations. Um, and the last thing that I'll say is like, there's a lot of really interesting, research on the psychology of giving that I've started to read and, and learn about. Um, I read a really interesting article the other day about how important it is not to overthink people. It's like there are some fundraisers who are saying, you know, thank you so much for your gift. Your gift means so much to our organization, yada, yada, yada. Like you're overthinking them. They don't need to be thanked that much. But instead, you can say, thank you so much for your gift. Know that we appreciate your support. Your gift is going to go a long way to doing X, Y, Z activities. Sort of managing the expectations of how you think people is super important. So there's a lot to learn, and I feel like every day I'm learning new things. Well, so where do you get your professional development? So are there like particular websites that you're using, books, like others? Like, yeah, continue on that thread. A combination of um, books, webinars, um, but also, uh, you know, communities. So in terms of books, there are a ton of, a ton out there. So I won't belabor that particular point. Um, which one do you feel but, like was the most influential for you? Oh. That's a good question. Um, I don't know that I can pinpoint one in particular. There's one author, her name is Chris Putnam hyphenated something. Uh, and she wrote a really interesting book, uh, about, um, about giving, I can't remember the title off the top of my head. Um, so I'm not going to answer your question, but, uh, in terms of like, uh, articles and sites that I look at, you know, the Chronicle, uh, Philanthropy is always a, a, a great resource. Um, I follow a company called Campbell and Co. They're based out of Chicago. They have lots of really awesome webinars and articles that they post. Um, what else? Uh, plus Delta, obviously, I have a whole workbook from Plus Delta that I still refer to even today. Um, but then in terms of communities, there are tons. So, you know, the Association of Fundraising Professionals, uh, I'm a member of Massachusetts. Um, when I worked in higher ed, we had something called CASE, uh, which is a council for the advancement of something education. Uh, it's just like a professional community. So I was a member of that and I was really involved. 
with Case District 1. And so went to a lot of conferences, uh, did a lot of workshops, facilitated a lot of workshops myself. Um, community-centric fundraising is, is another great community. It's more progressive than some of the other professional networks that I'm a part of um, and more of like a disruptive fundraising community, I'd say. Disruptive in terms of like bringing new ideas to the forefront. Um, and then finally, like I just do a ton of programs. So like right now I'm in a fundraising accelerator program. Uh, so yeah, there's a lot out there. Love. How, what does your, well, I asked earlier, like what does your day look like? But like, do you work long hours? Like what is the kind of quote unquote work life, work, work personal? balance in terms of um do you have like to go to meetings do you have to travel a lot like do you pay is there some out-of-pocket cost um or do you have a company credit card like oh are you dining or are you eating um i don't know like mcdonald's like what is it what you probably <laughs> like eating mcdonald's with like people who have x thousands of money to get but talk about like the work-life pieces of it yeah, in, in years past, fundraising required significant travel for many of us in the industry. Um, I, I used to travel all the way north to sort of Maine, Vermont, and all the way down to Rhode Island. And then I did a few trips uh, outside of the New England area as well, because I covered New England, Canada, and the Midwest. Um, so there, there's typically travel involved, depending on how big your fundraising shop is, it might be a ton of travel. I have colleagues who were literally in, you know, New York for two weeks every month or so. And, and so that's a lot. Um, now because of the pandemic, no one's traveling anywhere. And we're realizing that a lot of our work can be done remotely and it can be done well remotely so i think once everyone's vaccinated and in-person experiences resume um i don't know that i'll be traveling a lot but there will be travel involved but no significant travel um generally speaking work-life balance is actually really nice for fundraisers not only are we typically the most well compensated employees of the nonprofit space, we also have like the best work life balance. Um, because, you know, actually, I don't know why. <laughs> uh, but I feel like I work my 40 hours. I, I never feel pressured to work more um, than I need to or than I want to, unless there are some big projects down the line. But, yeah, I feel like I've been able to maintain a lot of sanity. Um, funny enough, when I worked as a program coordinator, working on the program side, you know, that's hectic because you, in, in my case, I was working with high school students all across the world, different time zones. So I was like answering emails late into the night. Um, and I was doing workshops during the weekend for kids. Now that I'm in fundraising, you know, I set my hours, I set my time, uh, I set boundaries for myself that I didn't do before. Well, 
Can you talk about what the salary range is? So even in terms of, like, is it significantly, you mentioned, right, the, the intake is different from the organization that you left to the one that you're currently in. Does that have impact on salary as well? Or is it more role specific measures? It's both. So I think generally fundraisers make more and it is also role specific. Um, and this is sort of comparing fundraising team to program staff because fundraisers are revenue generating employees. They get paid more. And I think the data would express that as well. Is it equitable? I don't know for certain, but that's what I've seen and that's what I've experienced at least. Um, I think people who are at sort of the director level and above, uh, for any fundraising shop, they get compensated quite well, um, because you're thinking about strategy for institutional and individual giving. You're thinking about communications. There are lots of pieces to being a director and above, uh, for a fundraising team. And so the compensation is quite nice. You know, if you're chief development officer for, a university, for example, like you can, you can make 250k, um, comfortably. If you're working at, you know, a top 20 university, you can make more than that, certainly. So it's a comfortable lifestyle for sure. But if you're not director, how are you eating? Like, is it like, oh, the director is making like 300k and then the, the, and then the sort of entry <laughs> mid level people are like, um, I don't know. Like, I'm, like, I'm struggling. Like, there's yeah. not, like, at, like, intervention programs or whatever. Yeah. No, no. Uh, I don't think that's the case at all. I think, so, sort of like that annual fund level that we talked about before. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, I think, and this is just based on my experience sure. in the 60s, 70s. Oh, wow. So, um, for job? That's more than I thought. For major gift officers, you know, they make close to six figures, sometimes over six figures. I've seen some small nonprofits even do over six figures for major gift officers. Um, principal gift officers, no, they make well over six figure salaries. But again, like, one would need to do research to really <laughs> know what's possible. But from what I've seen, at least, those numbers hold true for many organizations. Mom, um, do you, it seems like your work, and you mentioned it, is very like relationship based. Like you are sending out an email and hoping people are responding to you. If they follow up, you have to connect with them. It sounds like so they can be like, oh, let me like. It sounds like you just have to sort of really, and not necessarily ingratiate yourself in their life, but they have to know you a bit or feel comfortable with you. You talked about developing trust. Sort of, what is that process like of connecting with people? Do you feel like there are pieces of yourself that maybe you've had to like lean into more or like pull back away from expressing in order to sort of get the money? <laughs> Yeah. I did a whole podcast episode on this. <laughs> um, if you listen to the nonprofit download, 
uh, or nonprofit lowdown uh, with Rio Wong. I did a whole episode on being a black fundraiser. I think there are parts of your identity, of my identity, that I do negotiate as a fundraiser because of my race, my ethnicity, my socioeconomic upbringing, and my relationship to wealth. Definitely. Um, I negotiate things all the time. It also helps that, you know, I went to an independent school on the Upper West Side of Manhattan. I went to Colgate. I have been in predominantly white spaces for, I'd say, a lot of my life at this point. And so I'm able to navigate those spaces quite well. Uh, code switching oftentimes is required. Um, and by required, I, I really mean helpful to me. I don't know that anyone requires it, but I find that it's helpful to me to code switch during certain moments. Um, but I always feel, and I always have felt like I can show up as myself. Um, I think donors and not just donors, like humans relate to authenticity. And so I try my best to be as authentic as possible. Um, does that answer your question? That does answer my question. It seems yeah. like, right, it's a constant negotiation. Yeah, yeah. So, yes, <laughs> there are <laughs> things you both amplify and downplay. And does that depend on the individual? Or is it just like a work standard, like here's who I am at work, and that's where the first kind of filter of who you are comes into play? Yeah, I think it, it definitely depends on, on the person. Um, yeah, I think it depends on the person. I think a lot about on the front end, you know, when I'm meeting someone for the first time, I think about what our journey is going to be in terms of our relationship. Like there are certain donors that I meet with for the first time. And I think to myself, like, we're going on a journey together and I'm excited about it. And like, I already have things that I want to do with them to bring their relationship closer to the organization. There are some donors that I meet with and like, I know that I'm not going to hit it off with them and I'm okay with that. And I make peace with that. And I say to myself, this is going to be a rocky relationship. That's okay. I map out the journey in my head, but I also like set boundaries for myself and manage my expectations. Like I don't need to be best friends with this person. I need something that they have and like that's okay if our relationship is transactional um so yeah i think it's you know every every individual has a different experience with me interesting is there anything i didn't ask you you want to offer <laughs> uh that question i feel like is always the hardest question because honestly i don't know i feel like I've, I've shared a lot in the time that we've had together. <laughs> um, I guess I would end by saying that the way that I have talked about fundraising and fundraisers is based upon a more traditional historical context. There is a world where fundraising and fundraisers look different. 
I'm a part of many conversations about what that world can look like and I hope will look like in the time to come. Um, and so, like, you know, take these words with a grain of salt because I think the fundraising industry needs to be more in tune with diversity, equity, and inclusion goals. Um, and to see our industry sort of transition to meet expectations around DEI, um, you know, it'll be interesting. Interesting. Yeah, I think that that is big. So is it uncommon to be a black fundraiser? Um, there aren't many of us. Um, it's a small community, but there is a significant number of black fundraisers in the U.S., but relative to the white fundraising community, we are tiny. Uh, and when you look at sort of what the positions are, uh, there are disparities. <laughs> interesting. So then do you feel like being, like, so then what might be the impact then? Do you feel like, oh, you're more, like, right, in terms of DEI as well, like, do you feel like, oh, as a black fundraiser, like, you have more novelty? Or is it like, oh, there's a lot more potential rejection? Um. Cause like, are there people who don't yeah. want to meet with you? Because they're like, oh, I don't want to talk to him. <laughs> no, uh, well, I don't know, to be quite honest. Like, I don't, I think, um, working at MIT, which is a very diverse, institution and has a diverse alumni base um you know i feel like people sort of welcomed me although there were certain instances where um race was certainly a challenge in building a relationship um but for the most part i felt welcomed and i felt like i belonged um where i was coming from in regards to dei is like Philanthropy itself as an industry is based on this idea that certain people have power and sort of the financial capital to make things happen. Um, and that power dynamic is, is problematic. That's not equitable. It's not very inclusive. There are practices that we have as an industry that, you know, when we when we sort of pander to donors, when we overthink them, when we don't acknowledge the privilege that they have, when we position students as like, you know, being grateful children to these rich donors, as we were talking about before, like there are aspects of our work that are in direct contradiction to DEI principles and goals that we, that we share. Um, and so there's a lot of negotiating that we have to do to figure out, you know, how does justice show up? How does equity show up in fundraising? You know, when, when finances and one's economic well-being is basically at the expense of like the communities that we're serving as a, as a nonprofit, you are rich because you benefited from the backs of black and brown people who made you money. Now you're giving that money back to us in this really problematic power dynamic relationship. So that 
that piece of the work we haven't figured out yet. That was a very long answer, but... <laughs> no, I think that that's very real and very deep because it's like... I mean, then that then you're shaking up the whole industry. You're like shaking up the world, right? Actually, with that note is that you have to wait. And I mean, that's trickle down, right? Mm-hmm. It's like, oh, you're hoping... Like your existence your existence exists because of the but like at the whim of somebody else's resources right and that's tough <laughs> as an individual and as a society that's the yeah. difficult thing to engage with deeply yeah but at its core you know philanthropy is love of humankind and i remind myself of that every day when i do this job like i do this because i love humankind and i want to see everyone thrive and um, the ways that they want to thrive. And so I remind myself of that. It gives me peace. And, you know, I keep going. And you actually reminded me of another thing. Like, how common is it in terms of, like, the benefits of gifts being, like, admission, right? So they're, like, story to a program. So, like, there's stories that, like, oh, this person's parent don't, or this person's grandpa donated the library. Or, like, mm-hmm. they put their name on a building. So that's why the grandchild goes to the institution how common is that real and like how common is that actually in terms of at the not necessarily that example but like the impact that donors have in terms of their own access to these institutions and that really being the main qualifier of why they have that access yeah yeah that's exactly what I am hoping to fight against. Because when people give their philanthropy with strings attached, I don't think that's philanthropy. I think that's a transactional sales relationship. Um, and that, I, and I'm not about that life. There are, there are tons of donors who say, I'll give you 50K if like I can have a board seat. We don't need you on the board. We do need your 50K. Um, and so, yeah, th- that happens not only at universities where you have the building on the name and the kid gets in, um, the name on the building and the kid gets in, but you also have that in smaller organizations where, um, you know, a wealthy person says, I want you to do this program. Here's the money. Here's what I'm willing to give you to do this exact thing and a lot of programs a lot of nonprofits acquiesce and they just do it because they want the because they need and want the cash um i'd like to see a world where we you know have more trust-based philanthropy where people who have resources say here's money go do with it whatever you need to make the impact that matters most to the community and i think we're starting to see more donors warm up to that notion. I mean, Mackenzie Scott, Jeff Bezos's wife, made massive contributions to organizations with absolutely no strings attached. And I think a lot of people are watching very closely to see what happens uh, with the organizations she supported and more people will sort of fall in line and follow suit when they realize that sort of unrestricted support, support with no strings matters the most it actually moves the needle so yeah we'll see what happens well that's interesting because even you said oh a transactional relationship and i was thinking bribery 
but I think that piece is even the another piece that you touched on was um that people are like, Oh, I wanna give this gift to a specific cause. Mm-hmm. But I've heard of that as a plus for um for garnering donors. Where it's like, oh, if you want to donate to your university, like, oh, maybe you don't like the university, but you want to donate to the program you were a part of, like the the Black Center, or right. like you want to donate to financial aid. Mm-hmm. And so that and so that feels different to me than like what you said, where it's like, oh, the donor wants to like they're not donating unless they have this specific project. But I guess it may depend on the project. Yeah, it, it depends on the project and it depends who's initiating that, that fund or that, that priority. So financial aid, it exists for a reason. Universities implement it because they need to recruit and retain students, um, from diverse backgrounds. Um, and because college tuition is like a super high price for no reason. So they have those funds already set up. There are certain donors who say, you know, um, I want you to prioritize the psychology department, so I want you to build a building for the psychology department. That's a donor-centered initiative that, like, the university doesn't want to build a building for psychology, but the donor asks for it, so they're going to do it because that's $150 million or whatever. Um Versus like financial aid, it exists already. People give to it because it impacted them personally or they just see the value in giving to it. So that's the difference that I see, whether it's donor driven or organization driven. But then if somebody is donating to the particular cause, like, oh no, so, so if somebody, right, if somebody's donating a certain amount of money, to a particular cause, right? So they're like, oh, I want to spend the 150 million on the psychology. Oh, I'm giving you 150 million, build the psychology building. How much really goes into the psychology building versus like, we don't want to do that anyway. We don't want to take your money. <laughs> but that's a good point. But what university is going to say no to that, right? Like the donor can just go off and put their money elsewhere to the next university that is going to take their cash. But for the university, they're thinking to themselves, you know, we can really use this money. Maybe there's a world where the 150 mil goes to this building, but they have more that they can give to other programs. So let's continue to build a relationship here rather than having them go elsewhere. And so the donor holds that much power where the university literally will add a priority or add or shift their priorities based on the donor's need just to keep them in the fold rather than having them run off to another university. And that's super unhelpful (laughs) to everyone involved. Yeah, that's actually really interesting because it's like they wanted to build a new dorm or something, but you're like, oh, no, we have to have this psychology building. It's like psychology is under-enrolled anyway. (laughs) Nobody's taking psychology like that. (laughs) And like, now our resources are diverted in another direction. We have to worry about exactly. the builders and the planning for this part of campus when we wanted to do something else anyway. Yeah, yeah. yeah there are some, and to be fair, there are organizations, there are universities that will say no. There are, totally. Um, but there are a lot of universities that also say yes, and they go with it. 
Mm. Wow, thanks. This and this this last note really lasted longer than I thought it would, but it is. It is actually. I, these are things I've never thought of, and I think it's actually quite pivotal. But I think in the most ideal world, people like we wouldn't need philanthropy. Sorry to say, like people would just have Absolutely. what they need, <laughs> and yeah. they wouldn't, and you wouldn't have to claw to to get your own sort of sustainability. Mm-hmm. I mean, I'd love to see a world where, um, like, nonprofits don't like they put themselves out of business. Like, I would like to see a world where I don't need to raise money for college access and success because every kid has access and they have the support needed to persist and graduate from college. But if more nonprofits have this mentality of like, we're just going to keep putting on band-aids and more band-aids and more band-aids, you know, we're going to have a situation where we're just going to need philanthropy forever, uh, which doesn't seem to me to be a good use of energy and, and financial capital um but that's hard work to get to that point where you can put yourself out of business and accomplish the work that you set out to do with your mission well i feel like that's a societal shift because like if you put yourself out of business right it's like those are that's still a job there's still jobs that people had to sustain their families yeah. so like it's solving the problem really in your individual best interest <laughs> long term and it's not your necessarily your individual interest, right? Like your, it has implications for your family. Can you then send your own kids to college, right. right? Like if you put yourself out of business, and so it's a tricky, it's a tricky web. Yeah, really tricky web. Because yeah. I'm like, why do we need? I think for you, I think I hear about a lot of like arts nonprofits, and I used to work at a couple, and so it's like maybe artists, like hopefully artists can just get what they need themselves so people can just go and see it like they don't need all the like they don't you don't need the outreaches because it's right. all accessible and all oh, right that was another point i wanted to make is that it's interesting because really like particularly i i'm from what i assume about high net worth individuals uh particularly given sort of media rhetoric like, oh, they don't want to pay taxes. Like, they're trying to cut their taxes. Like, but taxes are a philanthropy in a sense. Like, yeah, <laughs> like yeah. taxes are an opportunity <laughs> to invest in society, mm-hmm. right? And so hopefully we can get to a place where we're using tax money on, like, actually pr- productive things that people can see in their local communities the benefits of. But philanthropy is at their whim. And so that's the significant difference. It's like, okay, do you just have a world where the supports are built in or you just have to wait for somebody to, I don't want to say give it a handout, but in some ways it can feel like that. Like it's like, oh, here, 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 young kid, go to school. Like I'm, yeah. I, I have the, like, oh, I hit it, I hit it big in the stock market this year. Like, it's, I mean, it's, it's such a good point that you make and feels like such like a simple thing, but yeah, that's, that's, it feels almost revolutionary sometimes to introduce this in conversation with people. Um, and the interesting thing about sort of philanthropy these days is that people find ways to like shelter their dollars so that they don't have to direct it to any nonprofits at all. I mean, that's the whole point of donor advised funds. They get the tax break for their donor advised funds. 
they store the money away at you know Fidelity or wherever they have their fund nested at, and then the money sits in their DAF until they choose to distribute it to a nonprofit. Uh, and they're only required to distribute 5% at most every year, at least 5% every year. So there's a ton of money just sitting in donor advised funds, not being spent. People choose not to spend it for various reasons, but it's money that can make direct impact now. So one would think it's in their best interest, but they don't do it. So it's just a new way of like avoiding taxes. Now people can avoid philanthropy by sitting on these, you know, little nest eggs of, of DAFs. So I've never heard of this actually, or I didn't, or this is the most I've heard of it. And so if you have a DAF, the donor advised fund, let's say you're like, is there a limit to how much you can put in a DAF in any year? No. Okay. So uh, like, uh, actually, I don't know if that's true. Um, I don't know if that's true, but people can put significant amounts of money in their DAF. Okay, because I'm like, if you have 100K in the DAF, you put 100K in, then you only have to spend 5K that year. But you're being, but you're not being taxed on 100K when you file your taxes. Mm-hmm. But you've only, but you still have 95% of that money. You still have $95,000 untouched. Yeah, technically you have it, but the thing with DAFs is that you, you can't, there's, there's no point at which you can like direct that money back to yourself. Um, so when people get the tax break from it, um, you know, that benefits them, but then the money's just sitting there. They can't ever take money out of their DAF to like, pay for their rent or pay for their house or anything like that so it literally it, their own foundation or that yeah so DAFs are like the new foundations pretty much without the complicated like for foundations you have to file your own 501c3 and there's paperwork involved for DAFs like you don't need to do all of that paperwork but you have all the benefits of a foundation pretty much because your money's being invested the pot is continuing to grow and get bigger, hopefully, depending on how the market performs. And you only have to distribute 5% at least. So, um, yeah, it's wow. it's a new way for wealthy people to protect their money. And obviously, like, I think there are benefits. Like, I can open a DAF. Anyone can open a DAF if they want to. Um, so there are benefits to it. But it's certainly a interesting new phenomenon. You blew my mom with this one. Yeah. Thank you. <laughs>